Welcome to Reinventing Professionals, a podcast hosted by industry analyst Ari Kaplan, which shares ideas, guidance, and perspectives from market leaders shaping the next generation of legal and professional services. This is Ari Kaplan, and I'm speaking today with Karen Ulrich Stacy, the founder and CEO of Diversity Lab, a think tank that uses metrics, behavioral science, and design thinking to produce initiatives that cultivate diversity and inclusion in legal organizations. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you, Ari. Karen, tell us about your background and the genesis of Diversity Lab. I spent the first 20 years of my career working inside law firms, helping to recruit and develop and advance uh, lawyers. I got to 3,746 hires at my last firm and noticed that there wasn't really a pattern that I was seeing that correlated with success. Having hired thousands and thousands of lawyers and helped develop them and helped advance them to partner, some of whom stayed and advanced to partner and some of whom left and went on to in-house careers or other law firms. But the interesting thing that kept happening year over year, firm after firm, it didn't matter the practice group, the geography, or the law school that they came from, there didn't seem to be a pattern of success. You could graduate from Harvard Law School and do remarkably well. And then the next year, I'd have a recruit that graduated from Harvard Law School and didn't do as remarkably well. So I did spend the first years of my career in the trenches, but I also spent a good amount of time of, of the first couple of years of my, my career really learning talent practices and getting a chance to see what we were doing and how we were doing it and realizing that we weren't using a lot of data or behavioral science, which is, is how we came to the genesis of Diversity Lab. How did your experience in law firms shape the development of your various initiatives from the on-ramp fellowship to Diversity Lab? So in my last law firm, and I say last law firm because I did spend that 20 some odd years with four different law firms. I had a chance to work with Walla Gottschall and Cooley, Arnold and Porter and McGuire Woods and a couple of others. And what was interesting is even though they were all really different law firms, some of the same outcomes were true. And I'll give you some concrete examples. The attrition rate in lawyers kind of fourth, fifth year plus realm was around 75%. So in all of these law firms, we were spending a tremendous amount of time recruiting at the entry level, bringing these amazingly talented lawyers in, onboarding them, training them, helping to develop them and helping them to really think about the type of work they were doing, not only the quality and the quantity of the work, but what was going to help them advance and create the niche that they wanted to do as partners or in their next career, whatever that was. And although we were investing, as you know, because you're one of the veterans of professional development, even though we were investing huge amounts of time and resources and energy in developing and training the associates, they weren't staying. And there didn't seem to be a, a rhyme or reason to why they, they did stay versus didn't stay. And so one of the things that shaped my experience was having a chance to really work with American Lawyer and look at their data. So as you know, American Lawyer does a survey every year of mid-level associates and it's a mid-level associate satisfaction survey. 
many people don't know, they actually ask about 120 different questions. When you see the report for the mid-level satisfaction survey, there's about 10 to 15 things that get reported on. But every single one of those questions provides a lens into what makes or breaks an associate's satisfaction and their desire to stay or leave a law firm. And so when I was leaving Arnold and Porter, I had said to, to the folks that I work with, we really need to study this. <laughs> we really need to sit down with all of this data and say, why are people leaving? Why are people staying? Is there something that we're doing that we could be doing different and better? And so my first startup company was born out of that lawyer metrics. And so working with American Lawyer, we analyzed 64,000 pieces of data over 10 years to look at associate satisfaction. And I don't know if you remember this, but at the end of the associate satisfaction survey, American Lawyer asked two really important questions. One, how satisfied are you on a Likert scale one to five? And then they also ask, what's the likelihood that you're going to stay at your firm for more than five years? And those two questions allow us to really get a feel for how satisfied the population is, how likely they are to stay, but then we can correlate that to these other 120 some odd questions to see which things are contributing more to satisfaction and which things are contributing more to retention. And so, you know, what we found in looking at this data, which I think nobody had really dug into the data in a lo longitudinal way, in an empirical study way ever. And what we found were there were three things that led to satisfaction and retention. The first one won't surprise you, and it was about 80% of the variance, meaning that this one thing, more than anything else, led to people being satisfied and led to people staying at their firms. And that was the type of work they were doing. Was it quality work and was it interesting work? And did it help them advance? And if that was true for an associate, almost all other things were trade-offs, right? That they were willing to make if they had the right work that was helping them grow in advance. The second thing was associate partner relations. Did they have somebody championing them, mentoring them, sponsoring them? Did they have somebody who was looking out for their care and feeding and their growth? And the third and final was how family friendly was the place? Because as you know, you know, most of these associates are right at the age where they're starting to think about building a home life that might involve more than just them. And so those three things shaped satisfaction. And one of the things that I learned from, from looking at that data is that one, we don't look at data enough <laughs> as we're thinking about talent. And two, if we know those three things matter more than anything, we should be prioritizing them. But the thing that I found most interesting about the American lawyer data was that it was clear that work allocation wasn't necessarily equitable and it wasn't necessarily being thought about in a way that was inclusive and equitable. In other words, when someone goes into a law firm environment and they're thinking about, well, I'm in the litigation group, how do I get my work? In some instances, the firms have work assignment systems, but in most instances, it's a free market system where the partners can decide who they want to work with, the associates can decide who they want to work with, and the ebb and flow of work is dependent on a lot of different things, most of which is not under the control of the associate. And so then the question becomes, 
if you are somebody who doesn't go out and look for work, will you have the same quantity and quantity quality of the work that someone that does go out and looks for work or asks for work? And one of the things we were finding is that when we looked at it from a gender perspective, men versus women, men were actually going out and looking for work assignments and for the type of work assignments they wanted to work on. Women were mo more so doing the work that was given to them. Instead of going out to look for work and handpick the type of work they wanted to do, if someone asked them to do work, they would say yes. And those, that difference in how they were, how work was allocated or how work was chosen was significantly altering the satisfaction and retention of women versus men. And so that's how we got to Diversity Lab. The idea was there are these three things that matter to associate satisfaction and retention, and that's part of our goal in a law firm setting, then why aren't we focused on those things? And then when we look at those things, are we really paying attention to the inclusivity and the equity among the varying demographics at the group? And does everybody have the same access? And is it fair? Is the work allocation system fair? And so that's what we do at Diversity Lab. We look at data, we look at behavioral science, we look at the things that make or break people's careers, and then we experiment with ways to ensure that there is inclusivity and equity. And so we're doing that right now. There's a pilot we're running on work allocation, and I can talk about it a little bit more in detail. But that's how we got to Diversity Lab, was the idea that there's all this data that's so rich. It's a treasure trove, but we're not digging into it in a way that's really teaching us what we need to know about our talent practices and about the equity and inclusion of the people who are in our midst. How have your programs, such as the Mansfield Rule, evolved since their creation to adapt to changes in legal? So it was one of our experiments. As you probably know, Rooney Rule was started in the NFL about 15 years ago, and the idea was consider one minority for all head coach roles. And the first five years had a pretty positive effect, but we started to see it wane. And interestingly, as we looked at the data and the research, we realized that that's an experiment that would benefit from iteration. And one of the hackathon teams that we worked with at the Diversity in Law Hackathon actually suggested that we pilot something similar to the Rooney Rule. But one of the things we noticed is that when you looked at the data, considering one human wasn't a tipping point and considering one human for one position wasn't a tipping point. So Mansfield was born out of the idea from the Rooney Rule, but it got changed pretty drastically in that we asked firms to consider 30% diversity. It started with just women and racial and ethnic diversity, and then expanded to lawyers with disabilities and LGBTQ+. But it was looking at the entire leadership structure. So where the NFL is just looking at a head coach, in law firms, as you know, and in legal departments, as you know, there's an entire leadership structure who decides who gets hired, how they get paid and how they're rewarded, who's promoted, who's not promoted. So practice group leaders, management committee, comp committee, partner nomination committee, there's an entire leadership structure that makes these talent decisions and that governs the firm. So the idea with the Mansfield role, and there were 30 firms that were willing to pilot it, was considered 30% underrepresented lawyers for all of those leadership roles that make those governance decisions. Because the data was showing us that if law firms' leadership structure was diverse, 
then it was more likely that their equity partner was diverse, their income partners were diverse, their associates were diverse. It had a ripple effect all the way down. The other thing that we saw was if the leadership of a law firm was more diverse, the decisions about how they were hiring, how they were promoting, how they were rewarding talent were typically more inclusive and equitable because they reflected the workforce of their community and of their law firm. So it's five years old, the Mansfield rule. 30 firms have actually been participating in that certification process for almost five years. There's now several hundred law firms that have recently joined the Mansfield rule. So we have early data on those 30 firms. And we're seeing that Mansfield rule firms that have done the certification for five years versus non-Mansfield rule firms. Mansfield rule firms have diversified the racial and ethnic diversity of their management committees at 30 times the rate of non-Mansfield rule firms. And it's, it's early data, but it's at least progress and moving in the right direction. And that's partly what we're doing at Diversity Lab is experimenting. And then we look at the data, we look at the science, and then we iterate to make it better. If it works, we keep doing it. If it doesn't work, we change it. <laughs> so that we can continue to measure the progress and the outcome. What are the challenges of starting new initiatives like these? The lawyers that we work with are typically risk adverse. They don't love change and they are often perfectionists. Experiments are the opposite of every single one of those things. <laughs> They're messy, they're not perfect, it requires a great amount of risk because there is the possibility of failure and everything about it feels difficult because it's doing something different today than you did yesterday. And so when, for instance, we say to managing partners, before you name these four practice group leaders, or before you sit down to decide who the slate of the comp committee is, Slow down. Think about, are you considering 30% underrepresented lawyers? And when they stop, it's system one versus system two thinking. If you've ever seen Daniel Kahneman, the behavioral economics uh, professor, talking about how our brains work. But what we're asking leaders to do is slow down and think about who is the network of people that you're considering for these roles. And often we find when they do that, they realize that their network is made up of people who look like them. And if they sit down and say, all right, I'm going to consider 30% underrepresented lawyers, who is that? Who's qualified for leadership? Who's interested in leadership? They start asking themselves some questions. And when you ask yourself those questions, who's qualified for leadership, then you also have to start thinking about, well, what are those four competencies? And have we written those down? Have we told the lawyers and are, are we transparent about these competencies for leadership? And then what we often find is the leaders will write down, here's who I'm considering for, for these roles. And it isn't a very diverse group. And so then they start to think outside of their network. And then they start to go meet other people that maybe weren't in their network that could be potential leaders in their organization. And all of a sudden they're thinking, and their candidate pool for leadership roles expands. And that's what we've seen is just the consideration factor for Mansfield role changes the game. Because if, if the Mansfield role asks for leaders to consider diversity, it's turning out that when they slow down and they consider more underrepresented lawyers for these roles, 
they actually then appoint more underrepresented lawyers into these roles. And so that's, it's been hard because we're asking lawyers to do something different than they've done before. We're asking them to broaden their thinking and we're asking them to not make these decisions without slowing down and without involving others and broadening their network. You mentioned tracking the Mansfield rule progress for five years. How long does a typical project take? At least five years. So keep in mind, Mansfield is a good example. It takes at least a year to get these processes in place. So, you know, for the Mansfield rule firms, only 12% of Mansfield rule firms were actually tracking who they were considering for promotion to partner who they were considering for appointments to leadership roles. So very few of them were thinking about their pipeline and very few of them had processes in place where they were actually tracking who they were considering. So the very first year of Mansfield was really just sitting down and saying, we have to centralize this because if, you know, if for instance, let's take lateral partner hiring. If that's done decentralized by office or by practice group, we don't know if corporate has considered 30% diversity when they're considering lateral partners. For instance, you know, management committee decisions is centralized, but it's only done in the head of the one chairperson. Probably nobody is sitting down to track who he or she is considering for those roles. So it takes a huge amount of, as they say, herding cats just to start to get on paper who are we considering and are we broadening who we're considering? And then the second year becomes, okay, are we doing this better than we did it the first year? And then the third year, and this is what we found was definitely true of the first early adopters for the Mansfield rule. You know, we were asking them to track gender and racial and ethnic diversity, but we hadn't yet asked them to track LGBTQ plus and lawyers with disabilities. And we added that in the third year. And that was really difficult for many firms because they hadn't really been tracking the representation of those two groups. So now all of a sudden, not only are we asking them to consider, you know, lawyers who identify as LGBTQ+, but then they had to think about how do I know who, who identifies as LGBTQ+, and, and are we creating an environment at our firm that makes folks feel comfortable identifying outwardly, either in the firm or externally at the firm or both. And so it really starts to get people, even though people think of Mansfield as, okay, we're considering 30% diversity and they think about that as kind of a checking the box, people don't realize the amount of work that goes into, are we tracking? Are these individuals self-identifying because we have or haven't created a culture of inclusivity? And you can't pinpoint someone with a disability to be part of your leadership if they are not comfortable telling you that they have a disability. And so there's a lot of deep work and deep thinking that goes along with the Mansfield rule that I think sometimes people don't really think about. How do you see the approach to diversity and inclusion evolving in the legal profession? It's interesting because I'm 30 years in, and I think when we talked about diversity early on in my career, we mainly talked about gender. And, and then, then we talked about racial and ethnic diversity. 
And so I think we've seen an evolution of the definition of diversity, which I'm proud to see because it was exclusive initially, and it has become more inclusive. We are now talking about diversity as neurodiversity, which is incredibly important. Oftentimes, for instance, when we talk about lawyers with disabilities, people tend to think of visible disabilities. They tend to think of maybe blind lawyers, but there's invisible disabilities as well. And there's neurodiversity that at least 30 years ago when I started, it wasn't getting talked about. And mental health is part and parcel of that. It wasn't getting talked about. And now it's an open discussion and it's an open discussion among not only law firms, but law firms and their clients. And that's where I think in addition to diversity becoming a more inclusive process or thought process in terms of who we're thinking about, I'm thrilled to see the evolution of it, not just being one person in a firm saying this is important, but everyone in the firm saying this is important, and then working with clients and legal departments to say this is important. And I will say in the last five years, we're really seeing an evolution of clients, legal departments, pushing not only on themselves and on their companies from a diversity, equity, and inclusion standpoint, but they're pushing on their vendors and that's their firms included. And in fact, you know, in the early nineties, there was a lot of pledges. There were a lot of people saying diversity matters and a lot of client letters saying, we, we expect you to be diverse, but it's in the last five to 10 years that they've started to put teeth behind that. And there are an awful lot of legal departments that are hiring and firing based on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's getting valued in the same way that some other really important things are being valued uh, from their perspective. And so those two, those two evolutions, I think, are, are really positive. This is Ari Kaplan speaking with Karen Ulrich Stacy, the founder and CEO of Diversity Lab, a think tank that uses metrics, behavioral science, and design thinking to produce initiatives that cultivate diversity and inclusion in legal organizations. Karen, it's been a privilege. Thank you so very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Reinventing Professionals podcast. Visit ReinventingProfessionals.com or AriKaplanAdvisors.com to learn more.